and welcome to episode 28 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics with your hosts, Peter Alegi and Peter Lim. And this podcast comes from the 28th annual conference of the Sudan Studies Association, one of the oldest societies in the United States working on a particular African country. The conference took place at Michigan State from May 22nd to May 24th, and Peter Lim was very enterprising and brought the equipment down to the Kellogg Center and managed to corner the president of the Sudan Studies Association, Stephanie Beswick, as well as her colleague, Professor Jay Spaulding, and sat down to have a great interview. Stephanie Beswick is Associate Professor of History at Ball State University, Indiana. The University of Rochester Press have recently published her book, Sudan's Blood Memory, The Legacy of War, Ethnicity and Slavery in Early South Sudan, and she is currently writing another book on slavery and resistance in Southern Sudan, the topic of her paper at this conference. The book Blood Memory draws on extensive interviews to present the voices of peoples of pre-colonial Southern Sudan with special attention to Dinka history, and also demonstrates how earlier pre-colonial stresses have come to play a critical role in modern-day South Sudan. Dr. Beswick is director of Ball State's African Studies program and is the president of the Sudan Studies Association, who can be found at www.sudanstudies.org. She's joined today by Professor Jay Spaulding, from the Department of History, Keene University in New Jersey, a leading and well-established scholar of the Sudan who has written extensively on many aspects of Sudanese history, most notably books on Darfur and Sinar, including the heroic age in Sinar, public documents from Sinar, kingdoms of the Sudan and several others. He has contributed to the Encyclopedia of Islam and the Encyclopedia Ethiopica and also written on the history of ironworking in Kordofan in Nubia, the topic of his paper at the conference. Together, Dr. Spaulding and Beswick edited White Nile, Black Blood, War, Leadership and Ethnicity from Khartoum to Kampala by Red Sea Press and have a new book from the same publisher, African Systems of Slavery. I'm Peter Lim and we're podcasting from the Kellogg Centre at Michigan State University at the Sudan Studies Association Conference, where our special guests today are Professors Stephanie Beswick and Jay Spaulding, leading historians of the Sudan. Perhaps we could start, uh, Stephanie, with you. You've written recently on war, ethnicity and slavery in your book, uh, Blood Memory, and today you have given us a fascinating paper on slavery and resistance uh, in southern Sudan. Clearly from the discussion that ensued, this is a very complex uh, issue. Maybe you could elaborate a little about these complexities and uh, maybe the causes and how people resisted these slaveries. Well, uh, first of all, um, you can't look at South Sudan as one unit. It isn't even one unit today, and I think everybody would agree with me on that. You're forced to do the anthropological thing, which is to look at ethnic groups and then try and look at a history of ethnic groups. And one of the things I've noticed about South Sudan in the 19th century and perhaps well into the 20th century is resistance sometimes took 
resistance sometimes equaled collaboration. And as someone also said uh, recently here in this panel that we were just listening to, there are all kinds of slaveries. There are. Even the, even the, the Dinka, who are, are not a group of people that have embraced uh, any kind of centralization much in the past, have themselves, as I've discovered, oh, practiced certain forms of slavery and slave trading. But you can't say every Dinka did that. Only certain units of the Dinka, certain elements of the Dinka started going into a centralized phase. And before you know it, they were doing exactly what the Bagara were doing or Turkish troops or anybody else. And of course, across Africa, there's been uh, debates uh, for a long time about the nature of slavery, indigenous slavery, more benign forms of slavery. And but in your paper today, you spoke about the 19th century, and of course there we had the intrusion uh, eventually of British colonialism, of the ivory trade up the Nile. So is this something that impacted the people such as the Bari? Oh yes, um, the ivory trade uh, revolutionized this society because what we had was a highly stratified culture there. Um, a cattle pastoralists at the top and hunting and gathering peoples at the very bottom, and fishermen and blacksmiths somewhere in the middle levels of society. And during the 19th century ivory and slave trading era, anybody who could catch elephants and obtain ivory was going to make independent wealth, a lot of independent wealth. And it turns out that the lower echelons of the quote-unquote Bari culture and society were the people that could do this. And they got rich very quickly. This is why upper-level Bari were considering becoming Yari, shall we say, re-identifying themselves and going out and becoming elephant hunters. This was a way to make big bucks. Well, not bucks, but lots of money. And, uh, and, and some did. They lost their status, their social status, and became elephant hunters. hunters. So the intrusion of the <coughs> ivory buyers into southeastern Sudan had a very uh, had a massive impact. And the you you mentioned in your uh, excellent paper the changes to the class structure, uh, um, the the movement of nobles and commoners. Uh, clearly, there was this uh, substantial transformation of structures. Well, this is you see this is just the Bari. Similar things happened among the Azandi and. Uh, we have the Shuluk story. The Shuluk were a massive group of people who were determined to be about a million strong and uh, were merely just a few thousand by the end of the Turco-Egyptian era, apparently. It lost huge numbers of Shuluk people, transported up the Nile up into the Khartoum area, sold into Egypt. So off, there is, of course, this uh, other orbit uh, or dimension of slavery and slave trades. And um, often we think when we discuss slavery, we think of the Atlantic slave trade. But it reminds me of this different uh, orbit of the, of the Islamic slave trade, sometimes so-called, or slavery off east, the east coast of Africa. Um, looking at different parts of the Sudan, can, can you... Can you identify different forms of slavery oh, yes. different periods? <coughs> and, and Professor Spalding has also written about 
slavery in different parts of Sudan in, in different periods of time. So perhaps you could both uh, talk comparatively here about yes. slavery in let's, the Sudan. Let's put in a plug for a book that Jay and I have just edited called African Systems of Slavery. And what I actually do is I compare Azandi slavery to Bari slavery. And is that book now out? And it's uh, going through Red Sea Press, and it's called African Systems of Slavery. We look forward right, very Jay? much to that. That'll be out in about a year. Jay, in your own research, you looked at slavery in Kordofan? And in, my own, in, in regard to this particular book, I looked at slavery in medieval Nubia. It's a place where people used an idiom uh, that said that everybody was a slave of the king. What I've done is to look at the historical evidence available to see whether this was mere political rhetoric or whether, in fact, people were, in a sense, slaves of the king. And it turns out that although most people were not enslaved, uh, some were. Uh, and when the king says, my subjects are my slaves, he meant exactly what he said. And from time to time, people would come to my political unit to my village perhaps and we need to decide who's going to go in order to, to defray the tax obligations of the king. That's the Nubia story. And uh, further north of course we do hear in, in the press uh, stories of the vestiges of slavery as in uh, I think in the 80s and 90s there were stories of raids in the Nuba mountains and so uh, to bring the discussion forward for a moment can we say that forms of slavery still exist today in the Sudan as as we hear of, say, the situation in Mauritania? Or, or is this a different kettle of fish? I'm not well informed about the situation in Mauritania, but on the basis of admittedly limit, not limited knowledge, I would say it is quite similar. And there, there, there survives uh, various forms of slavery today, yes. And while we are further north and talking of Kordofan, um, you've been, recently you've been writing on the history of ironworking in Kordofan and you're going to give us an interesting sounding paper tomorrow. Can you tell us a little bit about your own intellectual journey across these regions of, of uh, Darfur and Kordofan, um, uh, Sinar, about which you've written? And uh, I'm reminded that in previous decades you've published books here at MSU in, from M Michigan State University Press and uh, The Heroic Age in Sinar was one and I notice it's recently, more recently been republished by Red Sea Press. So um, is this theme of ironworking something that you're coming to fresh or is it one of these uh, themes that <coughs> connect with your other research? You know it's something that took me by surprise. In times past I've tried to learn what I could about the Kingdom of Sennar, centered in the Nile Valley, and the kingdoms of Darfur and Wadai in the Western Highlands. For the last few years, I have been focusing upon the zone of Kordofan that lies in between. Um, it turns out that this is a place which, uh, until quite recently, spoke a variety of Nubian languages, uh, some or many of which are now extinct. Uh, today it's an Arabic-speaking zone, but it turns out that's a transition that was made only in the latter years of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th. Uh, looking back to earlier times in Kordofan, one of the things that one sees there is iron production, both the mining of iron uh, and uh, the smelting of it at a very large furnace complex at Jebel Haraza, uh, which has been 
seen by travelers and even photographed, but never examined archaeologically. By way of comparison, notice that there were two large furnaces at the town of Meroe, uh, which led to the ancient kingdom of Meroe being described, probably incorrectly, as the Birmingham of Africa. At Meroe, there were two. At Haraza, there's a couple of a dozen, a couple, of, uh, a couple dozen uh, furnaces, uh, and it was clearly a very large establishment. We get the impression that in the olden days in the Sudan, iron production was oftentimes arranged by kings for their own purposes. An examination of iron production and its connection uh, with the earlier Nubian-speaking community of Kordofan has led me to believe that both the Funj, who started the Funj kingdom of Sinar in the Nile Valley, and the Tunjur, who for a time ruled the united realm of Darfur and Wadai, perhaps in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, were both offshoots of this Nubian-speaking movement based in Kordofan. And in a recent paper that you've written on ironworking of pre-colonial Nubian Kordofan, you, you uh, asked the question about uh, why did uh, African ironworking decline in the Sudan? And, and you mentioned earlier theories such as proposed by Walter Rodney about the question of imports. But you raise other very interesting new ideas about cultural traditions. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit about this. We get the impression that the way the kings went about organizing iron production involved first the use of a caste of smiths. So the people who for created iron in the first place and then who forged it into implements of state, so alat atawla, as people in Arabic-speaking days would put it, uh, were people from a, a caste of iron workers, uh, whose women folk, by the way, were potters. Uh, they were assisted by slaves. Uh, both the people who mined uh, and the people who assisted in manning the bellows and so forth during the, the uh, refining process uh, were slaves. Uh, the people who organized production for the king uh, were themselves slaves, though high-ranking slaves. It means that the community of people who produced iron for the king were either from a servile despised, or either slaves from a servile group or from a despised caste. And it means that as imports began to replace local production, as the power of the kings began to fail and their active organization of iron production collapsed, uh, the people who had been iron workers were very happy to adopt different ethnic identities uh, and to become, in the event, Arabs uh, rather than what they had been before. There's a fascinating connection because Stephanie was also talking about blacksmiths, so mm -hmm. it does remind us about the sophistication <laughs> of African societies that are sometimes portrayed in very stereotypical ways in the media even today, that there is this deep tradition of metallurgy and, uh, and artisanship. Um, and also, you, Jay, you have written on Darfur, and of course Darfur is in the news, it came up in the panel that we've just come from in connection with, uh, with Mamdani's new book. And um, uh, we will continue the uh, uh, discussion about Darfur in contemporary times uh, tomorrow when I do an interview with, uh, with the current president of the Sudan Studies Association, Professor Yonga Bure. Um, but maybe we can um, uh, conclude the, the discussion today by 
the incoming president of the Sudan Studies Association, Stephanie Beswick, <coughs> perhaps you, uh, you could tell us a little bit about the association, its origins, its aims, its plans. Um, I've been very impressed by the uh, attendance and the debates today and clearly there's uh, strong representation of Sudanese. Uh, people have come all the way from Europe, from Germany and England and uh, there was even a proposal to translate the mm -hmm. annual proceedings into Arabic <laughs> and have it published in the Sudan. Uh, and I've noticed also many friends from the Lansing area, uh, Southerners who've come along, mm -hmm. Southern Sudanese, to, to listen, to find out what's happening in their homelands. Um, so perhaps you could tell us uh, a little bit about the association. Well, um, <clears throat> it's the oldest uh, of the Sudan Studies Associations. I think this is its 26th year, isn't it, Jay? I believe so. Um, the African Studies Association has become so expensive to become a member of and even to attend <clears throat> that when Richard Loban said, you know, we're cheap, we're only $30, that's part of the part of, uh, it's quite a big deal really, is that if you're a scholar and you want to get out there and you do Sudan, the Sudan Studies is really the only place that you can present your work. Um, I must say it's refreshing and, uh, and wonderful to be able to linger in longer panels right. and have this intimacy, <coughs> get to know new friends and meet I, old friends. I, jo I came to the fir my first Sudan Studies Association conference was in Lexington when I was an undergraduate. And I've been coming to the Sudan Studies Association conferences almost every year. And as a graduate student, this was my support network. And when I wrote my first book, it was my support network. It's where I went to go and find readers and... And well, just in terms of students <laughs> on the panel that you've just chaired, we had two PhD students right. from Durham in England, mm -hmm. where, which has this wonderful uh, archive on the Sudan. So it is still performing that role. What are some of the aims and, and, and uh, maybe challenges and plans of the association? Two, <clears throat> I believe to um, encourage a lot of new scholars to join the association, particularly ABDs, and particularly the children of Sudanese scholars and uh, the children of Sudanese who might be uh, out here in the diaspora, to encourage them to get involved in the association and become interested in events of Sudan. And what about this question of uh, publications? There was this uh, proposal from the floor to translate right, uh, that was really into wonderful. Arabic and what can we say um, about the state of say publishing on Sudan including in Sudan Jay was <coughs> just telling me there'd been a terrible fire in Khartoum recently and well I'll let Jay also answer that let me just say that um, closely associated with this association is is uh, is Chikolika Sohan's uh, Press, Red, Red Sea, sea Press, Red sea press. Africa World Press. Yes, yes and um, by the way, last year, uh, Cambridge University Press contacted me and said, wouldn't you like to publish the proceedings of this latest conference? And I said, of course. And so now we're doing it. We've got a contract. And we might even translate it and <coughs> publish might it. Might even. Uh, and Jay, so. what about the state of the archives in <coughs> Sudan and uh, how easy is it to do uh, historical research there at the moment with various uh, problems of conflict and 
climate and preservation of archives? It calls for a bit of arrangement ahead of time. I think once the formalities have been dealt with, it's a, it's a pleasant place to do research. The arrangements for doing it, as I understand them and as I recall them, are reasonable and very normal. Uh, in regard to the fire that you mentioned, I should say that the, the Institute of Asian and African Studies at the University of Khartoum uh, for many years has made a collection of tapes of various kinds of information. Uh, they have transcribed some of these things and published them, uh, some of the Arabic materials as uh, the popular legacy series, the Tarath Shabi series, uh, and uh, works in uh, some other things have been published in English and uh, occasionally in some uh, other languages, dictionaries and linguistic materials in particular. I'm told that uh, I believe about two months ago there was a fire in an adjoining room that may well have damaged some or much of the uh, taped material, which is uh, unfortunate. Well, let's hope that uh, those records about Sudanese history can be preserved and maybe also presented uh, in the future in, a, in an online format that might open up, open up uh, partnerships between this country and the Sudan. Thank you both very much for talking to Africa Past and Present. I look forward very much to the coming sessions of the conference. Thank you very much, you. Peter. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us a message at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.